Hello, hello, you chasers of excellence. Patrick here with a short introduction to this week's show. Two announcements. The first is uh, just a thank you to the folks over at the Keep Going podcast, which we are pulling this conversation from. Ben recently had a chance to chat with them. The Keep Going podcast is powered by TV12, which is a company started by Tom Brady, who is an individual who either you hate or you love, depending on where you live. (laughs) So excited for you to listen to that conversation. And the other thing is just a quick announcement. If you've been listening for the last few weeks, you may have heard uh, our conversations about Ben's new book. It's called Unlocking Potential. I mentioned at the beginning of each one of those episodes that the uh, exact date at which folks could grab it uh, was still a little bit unknown. As it turned out, we were like two weeks off. (laughs) So uh, we appreciate your patience. Ben appreciates the patience. The book is being released in hardcover on December 1st, uh, and that is for sure. Just search for Unlocking Potential or click the links in the show notes or go to Ben's Instagram or any number of ways to find the book. Again, it's called Unlocking Potential. Thank you so much for everybody who reached out asking about when they could get the hardcover. The answer is December 1st. Okay, so thank you uh, again for tuning in. Here's the conversation on the Keep Going podcast. And Ben and I will see you. We will not see you because we're over here and you're over there. Ben and I will be back for another episode of Chasing Excellence next week. We are here because we know the outcomes in our lives are within our control. That taking absolute ownership of how we eat, sleep, train, think, and connect with each other is how we'll optimize our health and happiness. That chasing excellence is how we grab hold of what is possible. Our mission is to live on the run. Always chasing. Never stop you have a uh, such a unique perspective Ben, because you work with the elite athletes but you've also been very successful with the average john burns of the world mm-hmm. in in coaching you know crossfit athletes the above and, average john yeah. burns <laughs> well, i appreciate that <laughs> well I, uh what i've been so curious about as a student of the game as i watch you know, the sport of crossfit grow and even the business of crossfit grow is the speed at which it grew and the vigor of mm. the community what do you think drove that or what has driven that to date so I think that the, the, uh, you bring up a really cool point, which is it, there is the business aspect to it, but then there's the community aspect. And I just think that the business aspect is a reflection of, of, the, community. of the community. Exactly. Yeah. As the community grows, as any community grows, the business opportunities are going to be a lot more uh, available to so many other people in so many different ways. And there's a lot of cool, um, sorry to say, what, how big the, the, the ecosystem of the CrossFit economy is with all the different offshoot businesses. It's um, it is pretty incredible, and to your point, is the veracity of that uh, of that curve of how fast this thing grew, and I think it grew um, mostly because of a couple things. The first is it was the right place, the right time. This was a a viral fitness, a, a, a virtual fitness program. Now we all do it together in gyms, in boxes. But the way it started, unlike most brick and mortar do, is it started online back in 2002, three, which is when you think back then, like online programming, workout regiments were not really much. It wasn't really a thing. Yeah. So think about like there was the crash of 99 or whatever in terms of the dot coms and all the rest. And then the, the the next wave that came up through that 
CrossFit kind of came up through that at the exact right time. And it was a virtual program with forums. And we used to have virtual leaderboards. So I could do this. I didn't know anyone else, anyone else that did this. Yet I could do it with a community. And anytime you do so anything with a community, there's this shared experiences. It's why nobody goes out and does an Ironman by themselves. They go out and do it at Lake Placid. They do it in Panama City. They do it in Hawaii. They do it in, with a community of other people. Because when you do it with a community of people, there's this psychological phenomenon which takes place, which is called the group effect. And the group effect will make you work harder and make you more accountable. It's the same reason that AA works, right? It's that you're in this community of people, this shared suffering. So there's that saying that from a, um, like some sort of uh, retired army general, which is, um, what is camaraderie? And the way they define camaraderie was going through hell and then laughing about it afterwards. Yeah. If you can do that, that's what brings people together. And anybody that's done a CrossFit workout knows it's not three sets of 10 bench press. It's not like reverse flies. They're incredibly challenging workouts. This is coming from somebody that did Ironman triathlons and they wiped me. Like it was way harder than anything I was doing in triathlon training. So going through that shared suffering and coming out the other side and laughing about together brings this incredible, lack of a better term, but like brotherhood, sisterhood of people really bonding. So how did this thing grow? How does community grow so quickly? It's at the root of what makes a community. And then what happened was people started labeling it as a cult because it was so passionate. Well, it's not a cult necessarily unless you start to think about how do you define a cult? And if it is a group of people that are super passionate about something, that have their own shared language, which we do, AMRAPs and thrusters and EMOMs and like we like you can't talk to Yeah, there's a whole vernacular. There's a whole vernacular so yeah. that like you see somebody that have a certain uniform. Well, I see somebody in the airport and I can they have broad shoulders. And I look the next thing I do is I look down at their feet if they're wearing CrossFit shoes. So we do have a uniform, we do have a language, we do have a shared passion, we do have a so I'm not going to, it's not a cult, but it meets all of the definitions of what a cult is. And that's what creates this veracity to yeah. like this, this tribe mentality. It's fascinating to me because to me, as I've watched it grow the last number of years, it's the biggest small community I've ever seen. <laughs> like yeah. it's enormous, yet everyone knows everyone. Everyone, yeah. you know, like you said, has the same language. You know, everyone in the community knows you. Like it's the biggest small community. I've that I could think of. I mean, maybe maybe you know Iron Man might have had some similar things like that. I suppose if I go back and think about it, but it's a unique phenomenon. It's I also I, we're still at the really early stage of this thing too. I mean, we are. It depends on when you say it started. Did it start in two thousand and three when the first affiliate happened, or did it start in two thousand and seven six when the first CrossFit Games happened, or did it start? You know, it's when did when was the starting point of CrossFit, but. Regardless of what, how you measure it, it's young. We're, we're, two de we're two decades old. So think of any sport that's two decades old. I think of it more as like um, like the beginning of skateboarding. In the beginning of skateboarding, that's like a cool everybody yeah. knew everybody. Yeah. Everybody. And even two decades in, there was like the really big tribes and everyone kind of was a part of one of those things. And they it, definitely had their own language. For sure. Because in the and 80s, I was skateboarding. So cool. I remember this. There you or go. Or <laughs> even something like MMA, like yeah. the UFC. Yeah. Like. There's you, people, for, 
it, it that started in late '80s, early '90s when I used to go to like Blockbuster and rent those videos, yeah. and Hoist Gracie would go against Tank Abbott. And, yeah. But then it, 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 there was it was so raw and on, and it's the same thing as our space. It was, for the first decade, it was raw. It, we were garage gyms. We were underground. There wasn't a lot of rules. There was a lot of guidelines. It was just do this thing. Best practices will rise to the top. And then much like um, Dana White coming in and putting some structure to it, you could kind of see the parallel of what's happened now since the old regime has now left and the new regime is coming in with a much more of a business mindset. This is all happening within the last year. Yep. Like it's new. It's it's really, really massive new. refresh. Yeah, yeah. Massive refresh. Yeah, that's cool. What what do you think from a coach's standpoint, what do you think drives success for the top athletes? That's something people are always interested in, you know. What what drives these top athletes? What makes them successful? And I know you've got a lot of thoughts on that. You wrote a book, so We'd love to dive into that a little bit. There's no singular one component. Yeah. So you love There's to no go, one thing. Tom says yeah. that all the time. Everyone asks him, what's the one thing I can so do? He's like, it's not one thing, it's you everything. Love to, and I think yeah. the, the expectation is, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm massively into mindset. So I think everyone goes like, well, mindset is everything. Mindset is not everything, but it affects everything. And that's a big difference. That's a great way to look at it. Yeah, that's a great it's, way to look at it. There's nothing that mindset won't affect. But you can't go, it's all mindset. You can't think your way yeah. to being the fittest in the world. There's so many other pieces to that. So what is it that drives them? So I th- I, there's five components. This is the way I break it down. There's five components. It's your training, it's your nutrition, it's your sleep, it's your recovery, and it's your mindset. And inside a mindset involves your character, it, resolves, it involves your resilience and your discipline and your daily routines and all of that stuff. The stuff that kind of like normal success people outside of our space would kind of share regardless. It's like it's about creating the right routines and the right disciplines. But each one of those five components, we could dive a mile deep into, right? The training aspect of what they do and how you assess your weaknesses and how you uh, train your weaknesses, the sleep protocols and what the right sleep hygiene is and what you're trying to do in terms of night and how you actually set yourself up for it in the next morning. And then recovery, which is where you guys and it's where our relationship started. Is yep. I want I was looking to maximize our that piece of our puzzle, and that's why we reached out to you guys in order the best in the world at the recovery aspect of this thing. So that's why all of our athletes work with a TB12 body coach. It's why we have you guys set up in our facility so they can work multiple times a week. Is we feel we don't we we understand the importance of recovery along with nutrition. All of those things. But if I was to, if I had to say, if I had to put one, if I had to, if you if forced my hand and said, there's one thing, what is it? It's discipline. Discipline, yeah. It's doing the yeah. hard things because anybody can do the hard things for a day or two. That's called motivation. Yeah. Motivation wanes. And anybody can get excited about running a marathon. And then they go out and they buy their sneakers. And the next morning they will run three miles. The next morning they run three miles. And the next morning, it snowed six inches and it's 43 degrees and raining outside. And they go, eh, not today. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. The, it's not about motivation. It's about the discipline of are you doing the hard things, not about the end result, but about actually about doing it for the moment today and being present. Yeah. And I think so a lot of times that discipline comes from like, what's your purpose, right? What's your mm-hmm. having that clarity of purpose? And I always say with Tom, 
It's one of the most amazing things um, is I got to know Tom was his clarity of purpose. You know, at 35, he said, I'm playing till I'm 45. You know, now it's out there. Oh, maybe I played at least 50, like whatever. But, you know, every decision he made or made from that point forward was how do I get to 45 and the discipline. And, you know, I talk a lot with people about being excellent at the mundane. Mm-hmm. Right. You just got to be excellent at the really simple things and do them over and over and over. A lot of people forget that. And you have such a wonderful window because you're working with world class athletes. And, you know, that's a special place to be because a lot of people think you just show up and you're the champion or like you just were talented. and You're the champion. Yeah. And that's or, not really or the case. I, I, I think that was the old. Yeah. I, th- I think that's the old script was was definitely you're either one of two things. You're either born with the genetic lottery and you don't have to work hard. And you, even in the NFL, there's the wide receivers that salute McDonald's before practice, and they're all pros. So there's born into this like gen- amazingness. Then there's the really hard workers, the Tom Brady's that made it through practice. And I, I think that it's, um, it's obviously both of those things. Tom, it really yeah. helps that he's 6'5", and yeah. you know, it really helps that he has a cannon Yeah, front you need off. to have some gifts. Yeah, yeah for you sure. You have some gifts, yeah. But then I think people go like, well, I don't have that one. And um, the practice one, it's I, I think that they, people really sell them short because they, they see that as I don't have the environments and the opportunity. And so they go, I don't have the coaches to work with. I don't have the facility. I don't have whatever it might be, fill in the blank. And because I don't, I'm not put in that environment, it means that this is why I'm not, I, I have an excuse to why not to work hard. And it's, to me, it's not, yeah, there's the people that move to work with a coach and all of a sudden have incredible results. They fall into this amazing opportunity, whatever it is. But I do believe that it is the 10,000 hours of deep, deep practice that's a necessity for any of these things, regardless of the opportunities or the environment that you're put into. Yeah. And going back to what you were saying before, too, I was just thinking, you know, having the good fortune of, you know, as you know here, we work with a lot of world-class athletes as well. And as you get to know them, you know, a lot of them focus on ultimately the preparation, right? And as you're talking process here and whatnot and the preparation, I'm just thinking back to what you're saying about in at the highest level, the games, as an example, you don't know what they're going to throw right. at you. And humans crave certainty, right? They want to know what's happening. And I guess the only way you can get comfortable with that is trusting the process, as they say, right? And the preparedness. And that's a big part of what you do as a coach, like making sure your athletes are prepared. Yeah, absolutely. So couldn't agree more. Like that's that's basically the ethos of my whole approach to yeah. to getting an athlete prepared, especially in our sport, because you can't guess. You don't even you don't know. You don't even know. You can't even like set up a system. Like the Patriots can set up a system. We're gonna run the three four. We're gonna get really good at that. We're gonna do a West Coast offense. We're gonna get really good. We can't even do that because we don't even know if football, in air quotes, is even gonna be the sport we're playing in July. Yep. It might be something completely different. So because of that we have to so hard, so deeply ingrain ourselves into a process because if you take your one eye off the process, which is so tempting to look for how is this going to affect the end result, you take one eye off of that to look towards what is this going to look like at the end, is this going to pay off, one eye off it and you don't have two eyes in the process, that's when people stumble and fall. You need two eyes on the process right in front of you staring at that next step. The process itself is so hard, it's so challenging. It's so demanding. If you don't have two eyes on that, think of climbing the most difficult route you've ever done. Like, you know, um, El Capitan. Like yeah. if you don't, if you don't really focus on that next hand grip, you're gonna slip and fall. Yeah. 
that's the journey that we're all on, whether trying to be a CrossFit Games athlete or be a better soccer dad. It's all about that very next step. Now, you can have a vision, as you said, if you have that passion of, I know I want to be world-class until I'm 45. Because once you know to connect the dots between those things, once you know what that passion is and you define it, well, with a great enough why, you can withstand anyhow. And once you have that really good like driving force, that fire that's burning inside of you, and you know you want to be the best football player that's ever lived, Tom Brady, or you want to catch on David's daughter, win the you know a three-time world champion CrossFit Games athlete, whatever that why is, cool. Then tuck it in your back pocket, and you don't need to keep pulling it out and looking at it. You know what that is. And then from there, what are the steps you're going to take to get there? And just know that that's been defined. You know what it is. And once you say, because I need to know that to define the process. If you say you want to be a incredibly sex, successful entrepreneur, the process is going to look really different than if you want to be the best soccer dad ever, which is going to look very different than I want to win Ironman World Championships. The goal at the end defines the process, but once you've defined the process, you can step away from that goal. And people do too much visual, in my mind, they do too much of the goal, 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 goal. And what ends up happening is you actually give yourself credit. You get dopamine responses by just thinking about the goal. I'm going to run a marathon. And the goal is what you've told, what everyone's been talking about with goals is make them smart, specific, measurable, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. time-bound. Yeah. And then from there, what's the next thing you're supposed to do? Write them down. What's the next thing you should do? Share them. What happens is as you're going through that process, I'm not saying don't go through that process. What I'm saying is once you've done it, tuck in your back pocket. What people do is they continue to think about it and share it, and they actually think that they're along the process. They actually feel good about it. I'm going to, someday I'm going to dot, dot, dot. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to dot, dot, dot. And they're not doing the hard work. They're just continuing to talk about it. And you can wish, want, and hope all you want. The only thing, the only thing that actually matters is action. Without action, there's nothing. There's nothing, yeah. So you got to take the idea is the massive, massive action behind those things. Laser clarity about what you're searching for. Back pocket, massive, massive action. Yeah, and it's interesting as you talk about that because we see that, and you know obviously what we do and help you know people recover, a lot of things with injuries. But you know, picture a high-level athlete that has a you know very bad injury and they got a big event coming up. And it can be a little overwhelming, right? It can be very challenging. It can be scary. Um, but really the process there is you start with small gains. Like, yeah, you know, right. if you if you tear your ACL as an example, like you're you're not just walking next week after surgery, no problem. Like there's a process. And so we find with our athletes, we got to break that process down as well and bring people through it. And ultimately, as you're talking about, get them to, you know, get them to appreciate it's it's the hard work. It's the little things. And I know like even this season too, Tom had, you know, his MCL surgery and like the hard work. It's like, we, you know, he's won seven Super Bowls. And he's still got to go through the rehab right. process to get better from an MCL. So it's uh, there's some similarities in what you're talking about what, with what we experience here at TB12. It's very interesting to me. Um, tell me a little bit about, you know, you mentioned um, Katrin, uh, who is one of the uh, world champions you've coached. And I just think she's such a special person in terms of her attitude. She's one of the most energetic, positive people I've met. But I got to imagine you coaching these world-class athletes, even someone super positive like Katrin, they have bad days, right? How do you help your athletes through the bad days, the bad workouts, and, you know, the tough times? Yeah, so everyone's going to have the bad days. 
And what helps me, this goes into that other bucket, which you talked about, which is that mindset piece, right? How do you deal with challenges, struggles, adversity? To me, it, it really boils down to a, um, a recognition of what is the voice inside your head saying? And what most people have heard that level of coaching and awareness. You have a voice inside your head, try to listen to that voice and try to get that voice to be a coach, not a critic. But they, that's kind of where it stops. And to me, it helps to really bring a language and a hierarchy to mindset. Because without that, it's really hard to understand where we are and how we're doing with dealing with those bad days because the emotional rush is going to take over and you're not going to be able to kind of filter where we are. And what I mean by that is I, I talk about five different levels of mindset. And all we have to do is recognize that we're going to fill, we're going to fall and jump between all these five, whether you're Tom Brady or Captain David's daughter or me or you or anyone else, you're not, because you're at one level, it doesn't mean you're at that level. And you're going to jump a little bit, but it's understanding and bringing a language to mindset. If I talk to you about sleep, I say, how are you doing with sleep? You can go, good. I slept eight and a half hours last night and I had four disturbances and because you can measure measure everything. Exactly. How's your nutrition going? Good. 2,100 calories is how I broke down my macronutrients. This is how I did my hydration and my micronutrients. Cool. How much fiber do you have? Got it. How's your training going? Seven hours in the gym. These three. How's your mindset going? Like what, where do we go? Where do you go? Where do we go? How do you measure that? So once you put a language to it, we're not going to measure, you can measure this stuff as well, but it's very intrusive and it's artificial. It's not real game day stuff where they have mind mapping stuff, but it's too laboratory. I want to know where's your mind in the training, in real life. Where's your mind when your kid is not doing what you want them to do? Where's your mind when your employees are falling short? Where's your mind when you have the bad training day, like in real life? So use the filter system of the hierarchy of mindset. And the lowest level is the victim mindset. The victim says, woe is me and I have no control. Life is happening to me. And that's it. And it's scarily common, the victim mindset. For sure. Yeah. Now, what we're trying to do is get everyone to elevate out of that. But that next level is still not great, which is the pessimist. And the pessimist doesn't say, woe is me, but they do say, this is going to suck, right? This sucks. Yeah. The next level above that is the optimist, which is the future is going to be greater than the past and the glass is half full and rose-tinted glasses and it's okay, we're going to win. But at least a little hope centering. For sure. And what we found across all spectrums is that the optimist will outperform the pessimist minus one. The optimist will, whether you're an ER surgeon, whether you're trying to be a starting quarterback on Super Bowl Sunday, whether you're trying to be, um, you know, make the JV soccer team, or you're trying to type faster and better. If you have a positive mindset, you'll perform better than a negative mindset. Minus one, which is if you're a prisoner of war. Prisoners of war actually with a pessimist will outlive the optimist because what the optimist fail to do is brace. And that's why the optimist is not the highest level. They don't brace for the hardships that are about no to come. There's no sense of realism at some right. level with the so, optimist. Oh my gosh, John. Yeah. So the next level is the realist. Oh, there you go. There you yeah, go. There you go, yeah. Life is ups and downs. There's going to be the hardships. There's going to be the challenges. At some point in the season, you're going to be down by 20 points at halftime. So what happens when you're down 28 to three, third quarter with three minutes left in the Super Bowl? You sit on the sidelines and you go, this is going to be a great story. You don't go, woe is me and fall to the victim. Yeah. You don't go, oh, this sucks. You don't even go like, it's the realist. This stuff happens. And now because of that, 
we can you can problem navigate. solve too and you can navigate yeah, exactly you can solve. right yeah, for sure because as shakespeare said there is no good or bad but thinking makes it so yep. so let's not think the good or the bad let's think realism real life there is going to be challenges and wouldn't we we wouldn't want anything else we want the challenges because the challenges this gets back to the question the hard days the days that you don't feel like you have it are the ones that forge you as a human being more than the easy days. And what ends up happening is if you're able to do that, you can rise up to that fifth highest level of mindset, which is the competitor. And not the competitor the way we've talked about being competitive. People look at the nine-year-old throwing the temper tantrum after soccer on Saturdays, and they go, oh, he's just so competitive. Little Johnny's so competitive. No, he's not. Little Johnny was an optimist not a realist. He thought he was going to win. And when he didn't win, he got emotionally broken. Yeah. And he wasn't and given the tools. To that's why that exactly. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't the realist yet. Like, no, we're going to, we're not going to go undefeated my entire life. We're going to lose some games. Now we lost the game. Let's how we bounce back and respond. The conversations we have in the locker room after this is what matters. That's what Tom Brady has done. So much better than anybody else. So his career is he responds. He doesn't react to things. And there's that inner fire with the competitor mindset, right? What the competitor actually does, here's what the competitor does. The competitor doesn't hope that their competition stumbles, falls, or gets hurt. They want the best from their competition. This is John McEnroe begging Bjorn Borg, who is the number one in the world when McEnroe was number two, begging him not to retire because he couldn't be the best version of himself if he wasn't being pushed by the number one. It's recognizing that's not about the scoreboard. It's about the true growth of you as a human being and how good can you possibly be. If you were to go up against a bunch of kindergartners in a game of basketball, you're going to dominate them. But you're not being pushed. Yeah. That doesn't make you better. Yep. Now, if you go against a bunch of NBA players, you're not going to be pushed either. So what you need to do is you need to be in that sweet spot of com- competition. Because you go up against a bunch of NBA guys, you're not competitive either. But if we can put ourselves in this environment where there's a little bit, the appropriate amount of struggle, which is the bad days, which is the days that are really tough. If we can get those days interspersed in between some of the good days, that is the fast track to us to getting where we want to be. So it's this paradigm shift for the athletes. These bad days are not the bad days. These bad days are the days that you need to be the competitor. They're part of the struggle to For sure. get you better. Because if it's yeah. everyday sunshine and rainbows, like you're playing kindergartners. There's no challenge. There's So, okay, we were used to playing a bunch. Of, we went from playing kindergartners to a bunch of um, club collegiate players. Now we're playing, okay, today we jumped up and we had to go up against a bunch of NBA players. Let's just recognize where we are. Let's take a step back. Let's get back to the grind. And with that hierarchy of mindset, it brings a level of awareness of where we are, understanding we're going to bounce between them all. Because you are a realist doesn't mean you're a realist forever in everything. When you go home and you deal with your kids, you might fall down to a victim. Yeah. Right? Like, why? Oh, my God. Why is me? <laughs> Which is actually a really good parallel. And st- like, think about being a young parent and your, your toddler starts crying at 2.30 in the morning. What goes through your mind? Highlight it. Is it? Woe is me. This sucks. Why does my child cry? Where's my wife? That's Wicked. what goes <laughs> <in my mind. laughs> Victim, yeah, right? Victim, yeah. Is it this sucks? Like, oh my God, now I'm not going to sleep and I have this big presentation tomorrow? Pessimist. Is it just close your eyes, wait a minute, my baby will stop crying, my baby will stop crying? Optimist. Optimist yeah. And they don't stop crying. Now you're broken and shattered. Yeah. Or is it the realist, which is what we should all strive to be as at least yeah. the realist? 
babies cry. Yeah. Like babies cry. What did I think? That like I wasn't going to have to navigate this part of the, yeah. being a – okay, cool. And you got to do something about it. Right. Yeah. Or can we – can we – and I'm not there. I, I, I strive to be there, but I'm not. Can we be a competitor? Which is walk into the situation going, can I be more present? Can I be loving? Can I be patient during this time while my baby is challenging me as much as they're ever going to do? Yeah. I, I appreciate it. I learned something because I've oftentimes referred to myself as a realistic optimist. So maybe I was somewhere in the middle there. No, that's pretty high. It. That's yeah, pretty darn high. I'm definitely not a yeah. competitor. So I got some opportunities. At least Most all the people, time I'm not a competitor. Right. And that's what people like. So people people like see, to that. You'll yeah. see little glimpses of it. Yeah. When, and that's, by the way, that's when you're in a flow state. Yeah. Like that's when you're in the yeah, zone. you're in the so, zone. And you're exactly. Going, because what yeah. you want, any nothing can throw you off your game. Nothing can throw you off your game because anything that could throw you off your game is just another opportunity. So you are Tom Brady on Super Bowl Sunday. You have six completions in a row and you're driving down the field. And then all of a sudden there's a personal foul and now it's uh, uh, third and 15. Yeah. Do you go, woe is me? Do you go, oh, this sucks. Now we're not going to score. Do you go, it's okay, guys. We'll be fine. Or where yeah. are you on the hierarchy? And I know where Tom is. Exactly Tom's a competitor. Yeah, exactly. Like, so what an, what an advantage for all the other guys in the huddle to have their leader be that guy. Yeah. Because if the leader is not that guy, if the leader is anything less, if the leader is even an optimist, which is just always cheering, you know, I think of it like, I, I don't know him personally, but I think of it as like Pete Carroll a little bit. Yep. Where everything's just like, yeah, yeah, rah, rah. rah Let's rah. go, guys, rah, rah. This is what the rah, rah guys, this is what the clapping guys on the sidelines do. And then when it doesn't go well, it's like, well, this, it's not real. Like, it's not, you were cheering saying it's going to be okay, and it wasn't. So don't say it's going to, like, be the realist. And then challenge yourself to be the true competitor. It's fascinating too, and you have such a great window into it and a great seed for it as a coach to, you know, obviously regular people, but also world-class athletes. In a day and age, as you talk about struggle here, in a day and age where everything is being set up and designed to take the struggle out of everything, you know, you don't have to go out in the rain to get your Starbucks coffee. You can go to the drive-through in your, right. in your climate-controlled car. Right. You can like, and you could go on and on and on and on with the list. So how do you as a coach, you know, you got societies working against you to make everything easy, right? And you as a coach are trying to help people understand you got to struggle a little bit, right? Yeah. How, how do you manage that disconnect? Yeah, I, I think that society is making things easier, but society is not solving the problem that we all have as human beings is we are, we are, we are drama um, um, problem seeking beings. We look for them. So yes, in today's society, we have you want a, you want an Uber, you can have it there in six yeah. minutes. You want coffee, it could be delivered to your door. You want we have we have paved roads. Like circle back just two hundred short years and the real struggle that we had to go to. Circle back two thousand years and the real struggle. No sanitation, no running water, like that was real. Yet with all of the developments we've had in society, we have no less problems. All the problems are still there. Email didn't solve a problem. Cars didn't solve a problem. Planes didn't. Like, it's all still there. So what we have to do is we just have to recognize that there's always going to be the problems. It's not about trying to eliminate them. It's about trying to elevate them. We have to elevate our problems. So your problem is not the, what that person said about you on social media. Your problem is not the traffic you're stuck in. The problem is not another rainy day. The problem is not that you failed this lift. Save your problems for the real problems. The real problems are your sick kid. The real problems are they got laid off from your job. The real problems 
are the things that are going on in the world that we should be really trying to solve. So recognizing what are real problems and what are manufactured, because once you've solved the problems, they don't go away, they're replaced by something else. And what's happened in today's society, my opinion, is that we're solving so many of the real problems, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yep. Like so little has to do with actual like food, shelter, safety. Few has to even do with like biological, with social belonging anymore because it's so easy to join a tribe. We're manufacturing the problems because we need them. We're seeking them because it's a, the root of our survival as a species is what's next? What's the yeah, next Yeah, what's threat? the next problem? I got to yeah. do something about it. So we're yeah. going to constantly, so just recognize what are the real ones and what are the ones we're actually manufacturing. Yeah. So in the category of real problems and something near and dear to our heart here at TB12, and I know you must deal with it because um, I've certainly seen it with CrossFit athletes a lot, injuries, right? And injuries can be big setbacks. So again, uh, as an elite level coach, but also working with, you know, everyday people as well, you've seen it from both sides. How do you help people work through injuries? And what are some of your philosophies from a training perspective to bring people back from injuries? Okay. So the first one is from a training and coach perspective is the training should be set up with one theme, one principle, which is do no harm. Now that as you work with someone like Tom, that takes way, way, way more emphasis than it is um, working with somebody that isn't making the millions of dollars based off of their profession showing up on Sunday. But it to me, that always is the theory behind the training program is you don't want to set them back. Yep. Now, from there, we have to define what harm is. Because is harm ripping a callus off your hand? Some would say no, some would say yes. Some would say that's a part of the training process and you just need to do that to build up the stronger calluses so they don't rip it the next time, which is muscle soreness, which is an achy shoulder, which is, you know, you just have to define what level, This is, where's your tolerance for do no harm? Because if you were going truly do no harm, there is basically no training at all because the risk goes down to zero. Once you leave the field, let's put you in a bubble wrap and kind of make sure you navigate the world with no opportunity for risk whatsoever. So it becomes this level of where is the tolerance. For a CrossFit Games level athlete that's pushing the threshold of what fit humans are capable of doing, which is what these guys are. It's, it's unbelievable to be able to oh, see. Oh, they are pushing the limits. Yeah. To be able to see someone that can do, with no exaggeration, deadlift 500 pounds, rub a, run a sub five minute mile, and do 50 unbroken pull-ups all to get all in the same day. That's what our athletes are doing now. That used to be any one of those things used to be reserved for like the specialist. And now Yeah, you do are, any one of those, you know, 20 so, years ago, any one of those things on any given day, you're right. like, that's a great day. So now it's a matter of like, okay, to get there, we realize we're gonna have to push some things. And where is your tolerance for risk versus reward? Working with the CrossFit Games athletes, it's higher than it is with my everyday athletes. My everyday athletes should not be getting any real injuries. You really shouldn't be getting any injuries if you're playing pickup basketball. Like you might get the crazy- it's contact sport. Yeah, yeah. rolling Stuff an ankle, I get yeah. that, but like chronic things that just happen from like overuse, like you really shouldn't. Now, if you're in the NBA, yeah, like every NBA player is gonna get injured at some point. It's a higher level, demands closer, uh, higher levels of tolerance. So what we need to do is recognize where that is, and then do as many things as we can in the protocol to mitigate the risks. 
So this is where you guys come in. It's doing things like body work. It's appropriate warm-ups and cool-downs. It's working on the appropriate mobility or pliability or flexibility. It's owning ranges of motion. It's training with the appropriate loads and intensities and volumes. It is doing the active recovery stuff outside from um, foam rolling, vibrating foam rolling to um, uh, massage therapy, the soft tissue stuff to um, make sure hydration and nutrition and sleep. Like we're going to try to cover as many of those protocols as we can to bring the risk down as much as we can. Then when it does, because that's the, the realist, it's going to happen. We're not going to pretend it's not going to. When it does, we're not going to emotionally overreact to it because if you emotionally overreact to it, there's a hormonal response, which cascades as a physical representation. Cortisol levels go crazy. Adrenaline happens, all the rest. So we're going to try to recognize this for what it is. It's a part of the journey. You're going to get injured. And then what we're going to do, we have a huge advantage is we're going to get you in to see, this is not a plug, this is real, to get you in to see a body coach as soon as we can. Example, Chandler Smith training for the CrossFit Games last year, one of the, we were doing uh, walking lunges. He tore something in his hip really badly to the point where it swelled up like swollen, it looked like there was a rope underneath his skin of about an inch high. It was a real injury. But from trauma to table, it took less than two minutes. Meaning that Jordan, one of your body coaches, was with us at the time. He went down, he hit the ground, he rolled over, tried to stand up, tried to do a couple walks, talked to me, took a couple deep breaths. Jordan was there. And then from there, we walked over to a treatment table and Jordan started working on him. Because of that, this was about, uh, memory's not going to serve well, but I believe this was about 10 days outside, out of the CrossFit Games. By the time we got to the CrossFit Games, this was a real injury where, I, again, it swelled yeah. up like it was a massive swell. Yeah, and for a muscle issue to swell like that, that is yeah, a very right. real injury. Yeah. Very, for very real injury. Aware, yeah, that's a real By injury. By the time we got to the CrossFit Games, it was multiple treatments, and I realized that that's an opportunity that we have that most people don't, but multiple treatments a day. Um, he went there with zero, zero effect. There was no lingering issues of the injury whatsoever. Now it took the seven, eight, nine days to get there, yeah. but that's nothing I had ever seen before. I've experienced injuries like that both personally and from a coaching perspective. And I have never, ever in my life seen that fast of a recovery from anything, but we've also Especially never- Especially when it seemed that acute. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I mean, it was like, I hit yeah. the deck. Something ripped, something popped, and I'm not gonna say you got like put back together, but I'm not gonna say it wasn't yeah, either. But because, effectively, yeah. But effectively, it was yeah. because there was no, there was no physiological, there was no performance limitations whatsoever. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I don't know if I ever told you about how I originally got involved with uh, TB12. I tore a muscle in my leg. I tore my groin playing uh, men's league hockey. Had a similar experience. I crumbled to the ground. Next day, I got into TB12 and. We got me better in two weeks it's on, as a guy in yeah. my mid-40s with a torn groin at the time, which is an injury that yeah. can take six months to heal for a lot of people. Yeah, So I'm um, glad we've been able to help you with that and uh, and your athletes. And certainly, you know, partnering with you guys uh, has been important for us as well. I mean, you guys are best in the world at what you do. And so uh, we love, love being a part of it. Um, as we move towards wrapping up a little bit, Ben, the other thing I just wanted to touch on a little bit, which I appreciate about you, is not only as an elite-level coach, and I think someone that's very inspiring to a lot of people, you're also an entrepreneur. And um, I think as I hear you talk about, you know, optimism, realism, pessimism, competitor, like 
a lot of these things apply in the business world too. So, you know, what have you learned uh, as an entrepreneur and in business uh, that's similar and or different than what you've experienced in the elite athletic world? Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I, I enjoy that part of the journey as much as I enjoy the coaching side. So um, I think it's entrepreneurship is amazing. I think it's been sort of in my blood for a long time. I um, it, it, it feels natural to me and to the point where if I'm a part of an organization that gets to be too big, I kind of want to back out and start over again. Um, but the, the parallels I've seen is I think that the biggest, most important factor from a coaching perspective is the same most important perspective from a business perspective, and that's leadership. And if you're able to understand the framework of what leadership looks like, it helps you because most people go, you got to be super engaging, you got to be boisterous, you got to be loud, you got to be able to own the room, you got to be inspiring. And all of those things help but they're not necessities. They are the, the sprinkles on top of the Sunday. They are not the actual Sunday. The actual Sunday to me is the ability to create a culture and what does that look like in understanding the, the dynamics of strong culture. It is the ability to share a vision. So making sure that people understand where you're going and it's the understanding of um, getting people to know how to execute. So I call it CVE, culture, vision, execution. To me, those are the three pillars of leadership, and those are the three pillars of entrepreneurship and coaching at the same time. And once you understand the underpinnings of those things, which all of those things, culture, vision, and execution, all of those things can only go at the speed of trust. So people, the culture is how people trust each other inside of the organization. The vision is how they trust the organization itself and execution is how they trust the actual leader. So when you back this whole thing up, the real parallels between coaching and entrepreneurship is getting people to trust you, which is also the same thing in every relationship that you've ever experienced anywhere in your life. We all operate at the speed of trust. And when you understand some of the, which I'm constantly learning. I, I'm not saying I totally get this, I'm, but I'm, when you understand that that is at the root cause and what we're going to do is do everything we can to try to build the trust between each other, between you and the athlete, the athletes to the athletes and the athletes to the organization. When that happens, instead of having a tax and a burden on every single decision and interaction, because if you don't trust any one of those three, Every single time you pivot, every single time you lay out something new, every single time there's a new um, initiative, it's gonna be it's gonna be fought with why I don't get it. But if there's a certain level of trust with all those things, bye bye the tax and the burden, and insert rocket fuel. It goes it goes so much faster, so much smoother. Not to say it's gonna be void of conflict. You want healthy conflict. You want healthy debate. Those are good things that inspire greater trust. So trust is not the absence of conflict. It is healthy, productive conflict. So the parallel between those two worlds is just getting people to understand that trust is the root and then understand how to create more trust. Yeah, and I can't help but think as you said, trust is a root and whatnot. So much of trust is, is about values. And so whether you know, you're sharing the values with your elite athletes and the people in your community as a coach, 
or whether you're creating an environment where there's shared values in the company and the entrepreneurial situation feels very similar. And that's been your experience. You know, like, yeah. So when people hear values, they go, oh, John, warm and fuzzy. Yeah, We're warm talking and about fuzzy, va yeah. values. Like, yeah. oh my God, I get it. But what about the hard fact of business? Yeah. What about the actual performance of the athletes? Here's what, why values matter. And it's when you put it in this way, it changes the paradigm. You're like, oh, totally get it. Coaching an athlete is a relationship. You leading this organization is a relationship. Relationships have to be founded on, we believe the same things are important. Important is another word of saying what you value. So let's take that another relationship. Let's say that you're dating somebody and you want to get married. You love hunting. Your wife values the lives of every living thing. That dichotomy in what's important, I believe that I should be out in nature and hunting animals and they should be um, on our table and on our walls. That's where I find, and she thinks that killing other animals is paramount to murder. Those values are going to erode everything in your relationship. It's why you can't have somebody that believes um, in the conception happens at, uh, or life starts at conception as a part of plant parenthood because yeah. they value different things. Well, okay, those are really extreme examples, but let's bring those down to some other things. Like what, what do you, where do you, what, in terms of work-life balance, what do you value? In terms of attention to detail and customer service, what do you value? In terms of you start to pin these things down and to your point, once you get on the same page of those values, we want as much diversity in our organization as possible. Group think is the enemy. That's very horrible. Horrible, thing. right? Horrible. You don't want yes men. You want yeah. passionate debate. You want people to push against your ideas. The exact opposite of groupthink. But what you can't have is people that don't have the same values because then they're going to be pushing for something that is not a right or wrong strategy play. It's at the heart of what you think life is about. You can get every episode of Chasing Excellence wherever you listen to your podcasts or on YouTube. Until next time. Thank you for listening.